Hey loves, I'm Marley Liss, and welcome to the Sensual Revolution. This is a global movement to reclaim sensual empowerment on an embodied and systemic level. My personal path of sensuality has not been easy. Shame around my body image, sexual abuse, and my queerness had me dissociated and numbed the heck out. It's been a big journey to get to where I am today, but I really have turned my pain to purpose. Along the way, I've learned our personal healing makes epic waves in this world. This podcast is here to remind you that your healing is selfless. When you learn to shed shame, love your body, and claim your worth, you pave the way for all people to do the same. Here, you can expect to hear from sexual educators and healers who work at the embodied level of sensual empowerment, as well as policymakers and justice leaders who work at the systemic level. It's all connected. So whether you're at the very beginning of your own sensual healing journey, or you're a sex-positive advocate and superstar, this community welcomes you. Let's come together and revolutionize this planet one loving, sensual step at a time. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome back to another episode of The Sensual Revolution, and I'm so excited for you to hear today's conversation with our epic guest, Dr. Lisa Dawn Hamilton. We get into conversation in this episode that is so unique and important, and it's conversation that I've definitely needed to have before without knowing I needed to have it. So I'm sure it'll be the same for some of you. Lisa Dawn is an associate professor of psychology at Mount Allison University. She's a sex educator, sex researcher, and total sex geek. She hosts a podcast called Do We Know Things, which is how we met. I was really honored to be featured on her podcast a while back and have since spoken at Mount Allison University on restorative justice for sexual violence. So we've come together for so many epic collaborations and the magic continues here. So in this episode, we will dive into how we can use sex education to reduce sexual violence. We'll break down some questions like, do men actually have higher sexual desire than women? What's the research behind this? And how do hormones like testosterone actually play into sexual desire and consent? Which is so interesting, especially when we get into conversation like boys will be boys and we hear rhetorics like that. We look at how different cultures and historical periods associate sexuality with gender dynamics. We take an expansive, pleasure-positive approach to consent education. And we also talk about empowerment around communicating desire and limitation beyond our gendered conditioning. So it's such an amazing conversation. I'm really excited for you to hear it. Let's dive right in. Hello, everyone. I'm so happy to be here with Lisa Dawn, who is so, so, so amazing. And I was really honored to be featured on your podcast recently, which is a podcast I would recommend to all the humans. Thank you for coming on. How are you today? Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here. Yay. So I always start with this question and you can answer it in whatever way makes deep sense for you in this moment. Who are you in this chapter of your life? That's such a great question. And I feel like that has 
in the last couple of years, actually, since COVID really expanded, even though it has nothing to do with COVID. So I would say in this moment, um, something I really define myself as is a sex educator. Uh, I'm also a professor at Mount Allison University in psychology, where I teach about sex and gender. I'm also a sex researcher. And I'm just someone who's an intensely curious sex geek and I want to learn and explore everything there is to know about sex and sex research, both from an academic standpoint and an embodied one. So mm -hmm. that's, that's my answer today. Yes, amazing. Thank you for the work that you do. And I just think it's so important to be teaching on the subjects that you're teaching on to the youth, <laughs> to all of us, <laughs> because I'm sure like, as we'll get into today, there's such a lack of sex education and mm -hmm. there's so much censorship around sex education in general mm -hmm. online. So it's really like a, not all heroes wear capes kind of feel for me. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for that. Thank um, you. I'm so curious what led you to this work and what makes you really passionate about sex education? I don't have a necessarily a clear story, but I feel like it was a series of events over the years. Um, starting early on, I tell the story of listening to this radio show called Sex Lies and Audio Tape, starting mm. when I was like 11 or 12. Uh, wow. And it was on 11 p.m. every night in Vancouver, but on Sundays it would start at 10. And so I would try to stay up late enough to listen to this radio show. Uh, and I just remember being curious about sex and relationships and wanting to get all this knowledge and then share it with my friends. Uh, I also had some really bad sex ed. Uh, I grew up in a city just outside of Vancouver called Surrey and the Surrey School District is relatively conservative and the sex ed I had was so bad and I remember thinking that I knew so much more than the PE teachers who were teaching it mm. and that I would be more comfortable teaching it than them. And so kind of my mission in life was to come back and be a sex educator in the Surrey School District and make yeah. it better. Um, that's not where I ended up, but <laughs> I fell into sex education in Vancouver at Options for Sexual Health, then got into sex research, did a PhD in sex research, and now I kind of combine the sex research and sex ed worlds. Um, yeah. One additional thing I wanted to note that was um, a, a big sort of inspiration for me around sex ed as well was being sexually assaulted when I was 18. Mm -hmm. um, and so many of my papers when I was an undergrad, like in developmental psych and women's studies and any course I could work it in, I was like, here's how we can use sex ed to reduce sexual violence. Mm. Um, and so I feel like that part has come full circle where that's something that I'm doing a lot these days. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. And I can very much relate to like that passion being so um, rooted in lived experience and mm. just kind of approaching education as like we're making sense of things ourselves and we're catalyzing the world shifting and cultural mm -hmm. biases and whatnot shifting um and can definitely relate and I imagine all the listeners can relate unfortunately to really bad sex education mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. can you share a bit about like what that actually looked like or didn't look like <laughs> yeah um <laughs> So sex ed in my schools was done by PE teachers. So in 
well, grade six and seven, it was done by our main teacher in elementary school. Um, and we had a male teacher. I had the same teacher for two years and he creepy. And so I think it just felt uncomfortable that he was the one teaching sex ed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with my women PE teachers, they were always just deeply uncomfortable. And that discomfort and shame was just projected onto the students. And like you could tell that they didn't want to be there, that they didn't want to do this. And they didn't have like the basic information Mm. um, and thought like, and questions about say anal sex, they would be like, stop fooling around. Like think that people would, we're just doing it as a joke instead of as genuine curiosity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I would say like the discomfort of the instructors was the biggest issue because I think that leads to so much discomfort in the students and then shame in the long term. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. And like, you can really feel that kind of intergenerational or cyclical shame Mm -hmm. being passed down, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's like, what were they taught and not taught about sex education? And then they're innately passing that down and that sucks. And it's so Mm -hmm. true that when someone kind of embodies this comfortable like yeah what a great question thank you for asking Mm -hmm. blah 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 like we're like this is valid and when someone's like shuts it down in that way it really does have such an effect yeah I think Mm -hmm. mine was like the standard um put a condom on a banana and call it a day (laughs) yeah that's basically it (laughs) yeah my gay self is like that didn't help me at all exactly (laughs) Yeah, that does remind me in elementary school, we did have um, this woman, Meg Hickling, who was famous in BC for doing sex ed. So when Mm -hmm. I was in grade six, we did have her come in. um, And it was quite a comprehensive sex ed experience for a grade six class. Mm -hmm. But that was the last time I had any decent sex ed in school. Yeah, Uh, it's so wild. We're definitely going to talk a lot more about like consent education. But I wanted to weave in this kind of conversation that I heard you talk about on your podcast, which was looking at like the relationship between gender and lust and like this question of do men have higher sexual desire than women and non-binary folk? Um, And I think that that question is just like such a um, such a like normalized bias and such Mm -hmm. a so many people are just like that's the way it is like men are obsessed with sex and women and non-binary folk are kind of like gatekeepers being like I don't know like (laughs) (laughs) if you really Mm -hmm. want it or whatever Mm -hmm. so I'd love to just hear some of your thoughts on like unpacking that question of do men have higher sexual desire than women and (laughs) (laughs) non-binary yes I do think in North America and many Western countries that that is the narrative these days that cisgender men have like anyone with testosterone pumping through their body or more testosterone pumping through their body have high desire um, that testosterone equals lust. That's another one of my pet peeves. And that's just taken as a given but there's actually very little evidence to support it in terms of if you look 
historically, for example. So across different cultures, across different time periods within the same culture, you're going to get shifting narratives. So there used to be a narrative that women were these lustful creatures and had to be controlled. And like the rational men had to control the female desire um, because they were so um, sinful and lustful. So that's within sort of of Judeo-Christian religions, but then you have other religious traditions across the ages where sexuality wasn't so shamed or had so much taboo attached to it, and you see much more fluid sexual dynamics and um, gender dynamics in terms of sexuality. Um, and then with the even the data these days shows that on average, if you ask men how much they desire sex and you ask women how much they desire sex you do actually tend to see a difference mm. but again they're not taking into account the cultural reasons where women's sexuality has been shamed <laughs> since mm -hmm. the day they were born right they're getting this message that your sex is shameful and that you shouldn't desire sex and that this is bad and then we wonder why we see these differences in self-report surveys in people saying um, their desires mm -hmm. That's such an important point. And I guess that definitely ties into like some of the limitations of sex research. But yeah, I think that context is so important. And of course, people would be like, oh, no, I don't really want it that much. Because that is such a cultural narrative we receive as women. It's mm -hmm. like all the sort of purity and like the, the, um, glorification of being a virgin like whatever mm. that freaking means yeah yeah hello loves just jumping in to tell you about the 2s lgbtqia plus community space that eva bloom and myself have created the fuck compet support club is an epic space to connect with fellow queer and questioning humans to build community and to process compet which is short for compulsory heterosexuality this space is just $10 per month and you'll get access to a guided monthly Zoom call and an ongoing Discord space for connection. There's always so much gorgeous community and chats happening in that space. So go to patreon.com slash support club, spelled as I said it, but minus the U in fuck, or to make things easy for yourself, just click the link in the show notes. Here you'll find more details and you'll be able to join there. We'd love to welcome you in, whether you've been out for years, are exploring new depths of your queerness, or are questioning your sexuality right now, this space is for you. You truly do belong, and we'd be so excited to welcome you into the club. So, uh, yeah, I hear that so much in sort of this, like, dirty, slut-shaming narratives and all these things that happen that make it really hard for women to say, I love sex and sexuality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so real. So what are some of the limitations of, of sex research that you see? Um, well, specifically talking about those kinds of questions, it, it's really impossible to get at for example, is there a sex difference or a gender difference in sexual desire when people are embedded in these cultural narratives? So it's almost impossible to answer that question in a sex negative culture, or at least answer it honestly or accurately, um, yeah. because there's so much baggage weighing people down. Um, so there's just the limitation of the 
the culture that we're embedded in, there's limitation of the questions people ask. So how you ask a question can mm -hmm. also shape the way someone's going to respond to it. Um, so for example, saying like, how many times a day do you think about sex, uh, which is a common question that has been used historically. Mm. Um, it, how many people are actually tracking how many days, times a day they're thinking about sex. So yeah. then you get people relying on stereotypes and you get men saying, oh, I think about sex all the time. And women mm -hmm. saying, I don't know, sometimes, um, and because we're not actually quantifying it. Yeah. Um, one study that I remember that did a, a decent job of getting people's level of desire in the moment is they would text people or like they would have these devices. This is before we all had smartphones, um, but they would get a message saying, what's your level of desire right now? Uh, mm. And they tracked that over time. And there was actually no gender differences in mm. those data because people are reporting what's actually happening for them in the moment and not relying on memory, which often relies to stereotypes, et cetera. Yeah, oh, this is such an important conversation as well, like thinking about the interplay of trauma and mm. consent. And like, mm. like you're saying, there's this narrative that testosterone equals lust. Mm. And we often hear this narrative of like, oh, you know, boys will be boys. Like they have so many hormones, they can't control mm -hmm. themselves. And we see that reflected in policies. Like mm -hmm. an obvious one is dress codes and the way that girls have to dress at a young age to like, um, moderate boys, uncontrollable sexual desire from their yes. hormones and everything. Yes. So I'm just curious, like what thoughts you have on that and how consent kind of weaves into that conversation and the idea that testosterone equals lust. Yes. Um, so my area of expertise is actually hormones and sexuality. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yes. And that was my sort of original area. I've branched out a bit, but that's kind of my core training is around hormones. And I remember one of the first things I was ever taught about hormones was that hormones in any species just increase the likelihood of a behavior occurring. Hmm. They do not cause anything. They do not force you to engage in behaviors. Um, and even if you're looking at rats or mice in an experimental study, you know, injecting testosterone directly into their brains isn't going to make them hop on the next mouse that they see. Yeah. Um, so it increases the likelihood of behaviors occurring. It does not cause behaviors to occur. And so I think that piece is really important when we're talking about this idea of boys will be boys. They can't control themselves. Um, they absolutely can. Mm -hmm. um, they can use the, the other parts of their brain to regulate any urges that they're feeling. There's no reason to act on an urge um, mm -hmm. without the consent of somebody else. And we suppress our urges all the time, right? Yeah. So kids know when it's appropriate to like say swear, for example, right? Mm -hmm. They might have an urge to swear, but they know if they're going to get in total trouble, they will suppress that urge. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, with young people, the, their brains are still developing and particularly the frontal lobes, which do <laughs> are responsible for inhibiting our uh, sort of urge type behavior. Uh, those aren't fully developed till our mid twenties. However, they still work, they still function. And just because you have high levels of testosterone in your body doesn't necessarily mean that that's gonna cause you to feel horny or to feel lustful. Mm -hmm. um, and all bodies have testosterone. Um, mm -hmm. For people who are biological males, 
they tend to have more testosterone being produced in their bodies, but all bodies have testosterone, all bodies produce testosterone, um, and all bodies um, are dealing with urges maybe that come up from testosterone. I also wanted to note that the research shows that uh, testosterone is necessary to feel sexual desire. So people with no testosterone at all, um, and particularly biological males with no testosterone, tend to have very low sexual desire. Mm -hmm. um, but anywhere in the normal range of testosterone, there doesn't seem to be a link. So it's not like more testosterone equals more desire. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to that, you know, teen boys do tend to have the most testosterone, um, uh, especially in the later teens to early twenties. Um, and that declines over the lifespan, but there's no correlation between, um, testosterone and sexual behavior. If you're within the standard normal range of testosterone. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is so important and such a contrast to what we're taught. And like, yes. I feel like a lot of us perpetuate and maybe justify or like are complacent with this narrative that testosterone is like this uncontrollable urge in the driver's seat and the rest of like, I'm thinking specifically around like boys and what we're taught about, like on a conditioning level, like the narratives mm -hmm. about boys, um, like the rest of the mind, body, spirit, whatever is kind of like in the passenger seat or in the mm -hmm. back seat, it's just like, oh, like that person is help, like a victim to whatever their testosterone is, is doing and wanting. And uh, it's just so important to like break through that kind of narrative and deem it as, as bullshit and give ourselves more empowerment. Cause I also think it's really harmful to constantly tell someone that they don't have the capacity to like resist or control and urge like what does that do absolutely I think it's dehumanizing and it paints young men and boys as yeah being incapable of controlling their urges which they're absolutely not so it both like dehumanizes and infantilizes them mm. um, and so I don't see why this is a narrative that's pushed so often Often. Um, yeah. I will add, I have a collaborator and friend um, who's a lot older than me, and he also studies testosterone, and he feels the exact opposite is of me. He mm. sees testosterone as just controlling everything. He oh, often cool. says to me, he's like, well, what's the data that show that sex education can interfere with testosterone's urges? And I was like, well, what's the data that show that testosterone causes people to engage in these behaviors? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so I will say that there are other people who also are testosterone experts that don't necessarily agree with me, but I would say that, um, I mean, I would say I'm right. So. <laughs> <laughs> I like your perspective more as well. And, and the reason that I do is because I'm just like, it feeds into a healthy culture of consent and the belief that that is possible mm -hmm. versus this mm -hmm. idea that we are all, um, powerless in the face of our like urges to violate one another's boundaries I'm just like mm -hmm. oh, that's not a narrative I want to hold and, and like perpetuate in the world yeah and we yeah. live in society and we learn the norms of that society all the time so I know you shared a bit about your sex education experience could you share a little more about like your consent education and what you learned 
about that growing up and kind of where and from who and what mm-hmm. those messages were. Yeah, it's interesting because I've tried to rack my brain about this like early consent education. And I honestly have no memory of anyone talking to me about consent mm. as like a preteen or a teen. I'm sure it had to be in there, but I don't remember it. Um, and the reason I say that is because um actually that's not true. I remember in really young school, like when we were in grade two, um, we had this like stripey puppet guy that would come every year and talk to us Mm. about, it was more about, um, like nobody can touch your private parts without asking that kind of stuff, um, like targeted at younger kids. But Mm. yeah, once we started learning about sex and once we got to the age where we would potentially be having consensual interactions with other kids, um, that I don't remember anyone ever talking about it. Yeah. what I do remember is when I got to university that this was um, right around the time that the phrase yes means yes started being used. Mm-hmm. Also all around my university, there was these posters of no means no, but it had all the different things that could mean no, like silence, or I uh, have to get up early tomorrow, or like, yeah, so there's these posters everywhere talking about all the things that could mean no, mm-hmm. and also at the same time, um, there was this push for yes means yes. So mm-hmm. yeah, I really don't remember much about it until getting to university. Hello loves, we're gonna take a quick break from our conversation to tell you about my signature group coaching program, the Sensual Wholeness Academy. This is an eight-month program for women and non-binary folk who are ready to let go of shame and claim self-love, sensual empowerment, and somatic healing within an epic community rooted in radical acceptance. The course includes eight modules which dive into content like strengthening boundaries, claiming your true yes and no, transforming shame around sexuality, building a mindful self-pleasure practice, releasing body and genital shame, transforming trauma-inclusive sex education, empowered intimacy, the wheel of consent, and so much more. When you sign up for the Central Wholeness Academy, you get access to live weekly group coaching calls featuring embodiment practices. You get the eight video training modules. You get access to our VIP virtual community space where you receive ongoing support throughout the whole program. You get guided journal prompts, community to last a lifetime, and bonus workshops with amazing guests. If you're someone who's ready to let go of shame or numbness and claim the sensual empowerment and self-love you deserve, then your next step is to go to marleyliss.com slash SWA. You'll also see the link for that in the show notes. So here you'll see plenty more details about the program and you'll be able to set up a free consultation call with myself where you'll receive personalized support and explore if this is a fit for you. So I'm so looking forward to connecting with you on this call. You're so worthy and capable of this reclamation. Did you have explicit consent education? Good question. And yeah, I'm kind of like thinking on it too. I don't, I think it also started for me in university, although we did, I do have a memory, which I don't know how I feel about this tactic, but I do have a memory of us in grade eight watching the movie Speak, which is with like young Kristen Stewart and it's addressing like sexual violence um, in like a dramatized Hollywood sort of way. Um, and the teacher was just like, like 
one of every four girls in the room stand up like this is how many people in this room will be sexually assaulted and it was very like whoa um and I feel like that was like the closest we got to anything related to non-consent discussion Mm -hmm. and just watching Mm -hmm. the movie so that was like very interesting and very vague and also kind of just like what does anyone do with this information like it's Mm -hmm. just like it's just like well like here's the world (laughs) good luck out there like (laughs) um and then and then I think like the only thing I can think of in terms of like upbringing and family dynamics and stuff was like like hugging people and whatnot and there was never really this conversation of like you know you don't have to like hug this person if you don't want to that wasn't really a thing um and then I think once I got to university that's when we also kind of started seeing like posters like that and it was being talked about and I was in social work as well so we were addressing Mm -hmm. some of that um I like that they broke down and that you just shared some of the ways that no can be communicated beyond no Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you can share the distinction between no means no and yes means yes and why that's an important shift Mm -hmm. yeah I think, well, the no means no campaigns that started, those were some of the earliest, I think, consent campaigns, which I guess they weren't really about consent. They were about not giving consent, but it was the idea that, you know, if you hear no, you have to stop. And yeah, it wasn't until the later 90s, early 2000s when they started having a bit more nuance around no means no. Um, Because as we know, uh, women and girls in particular are socialized to be nice and not hurt people's feelings. And so saying no can be really challenging. Mm -hmm. And so I think having that extra information being like silence is no, excuses means no, like all these different things that could actually mean no um, and teaching people to to be able to hear those things even if it wasn't an explicit no. Mm -hmm. However, um, that goes along with kind of the sex negative (laughs) Uh, vibes of um, which sex education was really embedded in well and and still is um, but where it's about like all the negative things right and Mm -hmm. so the saying no um, fed into that idea of you know you should say no Um, and so the shift to yes means yes I think came out of a more sex positive lens um, with this idea of yeah there actually are things you might want to say yes to Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and also that it shouldn't just be an absence of a no it should be a more enthusiastic yeah I'm here I want to do this I'm in Um, and when I talk to parents now about talking to their kids about consent, I, I talk to them about teaching your kids to say yes to the things that they want to, and then no, practicing also saying no to the things they don't. So like, mm-hmm. yes, I want to hold your hand. Yes, I want to kiss you. No, I don't want you to put your hand down my pants. <laughs> um, and so like telling kids it's okay to say yes to some things um, mm-hmm. and to know their own boundaries um, and to only do the things that they really want to do. And so the yes means yes thing really came out of this idea that um, women can be empowered in their sexuality and that they could make choices and have agency sexually. And it wasn't just about always gatekeeping and saying no, that it mm-hmm. was about like, yes, I want to be here. This is awesome. Yes. 
Oh, I love this conversation so much. I see that all the time with people I work with and in myself as well is like, we are, yeah, we struggle to say no. And I feel like we know that like our culture Mm -hmm. is like, okay, Mm -hmm. like we, we like see graphics and memes about it on Instagram enough that we're just like, yeah, like we deserve to say no and to be heard and respected a thousand percent, very important. Mm -hmm. Um, And also I think, yeah, this layer, this shift that a lot of people don't realize is like our struggle to say yes Mm -hmm. as well. And it kind of comes back to what we were saying, especially with women and gender around like shame around desire Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how that all plays in. So I think that that's super important as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know that you mentioned um, in in another podcast episode, you did like the book. Yes. Means yes. yes. The role that that played. Can you just share a bit about like what about that resource and what it kind of supported you with? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So yes, yes means yes was a book written. The first edition was um, I think came out in the early 2000s. I'm blanking now uh, by Jacqueline Friedman and Jessica Valenti. There's also a newer version. Uh, And I think the subtitle is something like um, a vision of women's sexuality or something about like women's sexuality. Female sexual power. Yeah. It's around sexual empowerment um, or yeah, a vision of a world without rape or female sexual empowerment in a world without without rape. rape. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I got there eventually. Um, And that really has inspired so much of the work that that I do to be like, okay, yes, if we could speak openly about sex, if we could own our sexuality, if we could live without fear of slut shaming or fear of Mm -hmm. violence for saying yes. So there's often fear of violence for saying no, but there can also be violence for saying yes, because um, especially in heterosexual relationships, you know, women aren't supposed to be, to have desire. They're not supposed to initiate sex. They're not supposed to be lustful. And so that can also lead to violence. Um, so you can't say no, you can't say yes. Um, and it puts people in a, a terrible bind. Um, yeah. so yeah, just the idea that, um, of empowered sexuality and shifting the world, um, from women as being gatekeepers to women as like fully agentic embodied (laughs) sexual humans, Mm. like the work that you do (laughs) to create people who feel that way. Thank you. Yeah. And I am so grateful that they were so courageous as to use the wording, like visions, like in a world without rape. Mm -hmm. And Mm Uh, like it makes me think of we had um an amazing guest Necca McGregor on mm-hmm. I think it was episode 10 and she is the founder and executive director of women at the center and their mission is to eradicate gender-based violence and she shares about how people often tell her like mm-hmm. that language is a little unrealistic like it's a little much for your lifetime like you should make it like lessen or reduce gender-based wow. She's like, no, like <laughs> this is the goal and every action and step we're taking is us moving towards that goal. Mm-hmm. We don't want to orient ourselves towards just lessening it. Mm-hmm. So I just have so much um, gratitude for that lens of just like mm-hmm. allowing ourselves to dream and teach and exist according to that vision of a world without rape so mm-hmm. yay for that um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what's like some language that we can use to make consent feel 
sexy and expansive rather than mm-hmm. cautionary. And I sometimes I'm just like, yeah, I feel like the no means no lens is very like the goal there is to like avoid a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's like, what are we actually doing here? Like, can we make the goal to have like beautiful, expansive, empowering relationship, mm-hmm. moment, like intimacy, whatever it is. So yeah, how can we kind of shift into that expansiveness? Mm-hmm. I think that it's it can be tricky because we live in such a sex negative world mm-hmm. for people to actually feel comfortable talking about their sexuality. Um, and actually something that I use as an example often is Eva Bloom's How to Fuck Like a Hufflepuff Yay. course where... Because I think often in casual sex is where we have that extreme lack of communication um, Mm -hmm. and how Eva shows through her course and and through all of her education on Instagram, et cetera, um, about like how to actually have conversations about sex and how to have good, awesome, compassionate sex, Mm -hmm. um, regardless of the length or duration or the length or status of a relationship. Yeah. I often though get my students to brainstorm things. So I did a bunch of sessions this year with um, athletes on my campus, but I also do this in my regular classes to say like, how do you talk about this? How do you talk about consent in a way that feels good? Um, And I would say some of the most common things are things just like, you know, what feels good for you or, Mm um, you know, what are you into or what gets you off? So just framing it as like, I'm excited about this. I want you to be excited about this. Like, can Mm -hmm. we co-create this experience? And, uh, but I also think it's easier said than done. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think even before the language has to come, like people actually feeling comfortable talking about sex and talking about their desires Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I often say, and I have no data to back this up, but I firmly <laughs> believe mm-hmm. that people know when someone wants to be having sex with them or like interacting oh, with them sexually. I yeah. totally believe that, that you can tell if someone is excited to be there, they want, they're enthusiastic about what's happening. You just know. Um, mm-hmm. And if there's any doubt about that, that's a great time to check in with someone and, yeah. and ask those questions and use your words. Um, I mean, words should be used early on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I just think that this idea that women don't like sex also really contributes to people, um, and particularly cisgender men, ex- not expecting enthusiasm from their female partners mm-hmm. because they're told that women don't like sex. <laughs> right. Ah, oh, that's so, so, so true that kind of cycle. Yeah. They're like, this makes sense that you'd be disengaged. Oh, that's so shitty. I'm so glad Mm. that we're shifting the narrative actively on Mm. that. Um, And I think it's so important to say too, that like the conversation of consent doesn't begin or only exist in the realm of sexuality. Mm -hmm. It's like consent is everywhere in our culture. So like, like you're saying, it's like, it's very difficult to try out voicing a boundary for the first time in your entire life in the middle of a sexually intimate experience. Like, right. So I'm like, it's such a important, like shared mission for all of us to create cultures of consent everywhere Mm -hmm. and in our friendships to be like, Hey, like 
do you want to go to the movies tonight? Like, Mm -hmm. no, I actually need to stay home and take care of myself. Oh, thank you for voicing that. Like this kind of practice that just allows us to normalize it. So by the time we are in a sexually intimate moment, we're like, this is a muscle I've been flexing Mm -hmm. for a long time. I think that's so not taught (laughs) in our world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I love that you shouted out Eva's work as well. And I'm just like, (laughs) update for listeners. I had Eva on in a previous episode and now we're like best friends and we've like collaborated on this whole queer community. And it's so, it's so great. So very much yes to the Hufflepuff workshop. Mm -hmm. Um, Something that I heard you mention on your episode two and I was like, yeah, (laughs) it's like (laughs) that... I think you were saying studies have shown or it could have just been an observation, but like Mm. in altered wording, it was along the lines of like queer community, queer relationships tend to be more versed in communicating consent. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I really struggled to use words there for a second. (laughs) Um, Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think the the what the research talks about is the heterosexual sexual script or like the traditional script. So within heterosexual pairings, this there's a sort of expected trajectory of like first you kiss, then maybe you take clothes off, then mm. um, and then usually potentially goes to penis and vagina sex, um, yeah. sometimes maybe oral sex on a penis. Um, the the cunnilingus is not in the script yeah (laughs) Uh, but there's a sort of expected uh trajectory and so the script that heterosexual people follow um Mm -hmm. and I would argue like heterosexual vanilla people um but anytime you get outside of that traditional sexual script so whether it's with kinky sex with queer sex there's more likely to have to be a conversation because there isn't necessarily a predetermined script. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the very least, you need to know, like if you're uh, two men having sex, who's going to be the top, who's going to be the bottom? Like that has to be a question if it, or even if you're having penetrative sex. So like, what are you into? What do you feel like tonight? Like that negotiation happens. Um, it's more likely to happen um, because there's no kind of default script. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, even within queer communities or queer hookups, there is still expectations based on say gender presentation. Yeah. So it's often expected, like say with two women together, like the more masculine presenting person is going to put on a strap on, uh, mm-hmm. and be the penetrator if there's penetration happening. Yeah. Um, so there is still like biases and scripts that kind of get their way in but queer folks and kinky folks are just so much more likely to have an actual conversation about the sex that they're going to have yes oh that's so true so important about naming the biases in terms of like mask presenting and feminism Mm -hmm. and all those things Mm -hmm. and I definitely see and like have experienced a kind of call to empowerment in that way Mm -hmm. as a queer woman like in those communities especially what we were saying about this idea that women have been conditioned to be like the disengaged uninterested gatekeeper Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's all these like stereotypes and kind of memes and whatnot about 
like lesbian culture is like going on a date, not doing anything and then leaving and being like, I really wanted to kiss you. And like <laughs> this like incapability to yes. initiate. Yes. Um, and I think, I think that like, yeah, that's such a result of our conditioning, but mm. it also calls us in to learning how to genuinely voice our authentic desires mm. and boundaries. Mm which, which is great. So yay for gay people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I feel like there's also, I mean, as a woman, I, I'm not a man, so I've never dated as a gay man, but as a woman who dates women, yeah. um, that the idea of, or the never fully knowing, like, is this a friend date or a date date? Right. <laughs> and then somebody at some, along the line has to be like, Hey, by the way, this is a date date or like, yeah, there, that vibe yeah. can be hard to pick up too. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it's so, it's so interesting. And um, yeah, our, our culture really has done all of us a disservice by that very um, like, yeah, intense binary of like women equals gatekeeper, men equals mm. initiator. Like, yeah. Yay for throwing that out the window. Mm. Um, I'm curious, what would you love to see more of in the world of sex research and sex education? Oh gosh, that's such a big question. It is um, a big question. <laughs> Feel free to share whatever like first <laughs> pops into your mind I know it's like huge yeah I would say for sex research I'll say first that I think this is getting better since I first started but I think there needs to be more integration of the people that researchers are studying into the actual research so mm -hmm. I see often particularly more clinical researchers they they're so removed from the actual people they're studying um, whether it is like a community they're not part of or even just like participants like for example studying erectile dysfunction as someone who doesn't have erectile dysfunction so mm -hmm. I think it's really important for people to get more integrated with the communities or the the people that they're studying mm -hmm. um or at least get their input on the research um I think that's so important and it is happening more and it, particularly I would say research in queer communities is often led by queer folks these days yes. but I think I've been to conferences where it's still like I hear the researchers talking as though they've it, it sounds like they're they've never had sex in their life the way they talk about sex right and so I would like it to be more realistic I guess or uh -huh. uh, I don't exactly know how to explain that yeah no I hear like a value for lived experience mm, yes as well yeah. and I just like um yeah, I guess I just think of like this beautiful panel I got to be a part of where it was 25 survivors of sexual violence across Canada, collectively putting together um, a document to inform uh, the National Action Plan to End Gender-Based Violence. Mm. And every single person there was a survivor. And that mm -hmm. was our qualification. Mm -hmm. and, um, and everyone was compensated. And they were mm. like, this makes sense. We, you are consultants. Like we, yeah, yeah. and I just really shifted my whole perspective and like validated that knowing that lived experience is knowledge. It's wisdom. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we need to see more of that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and in terms of sex education, I 
would really like to see more discussions of actual pleasure. And I've talked to Eva about this before too, uh, I think in our episode on uh, sex ed, but I just think you can't talk about sex without talking about why people do it. And yes, there are many reasons why people have sex, but pleasure is such a large component for many people. Mm -hmm. And not talking about that in sex education to me just seems egregious. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And there is a landmark paper that was written in 1988 by a researcher named Michelle Fine, who talked about, um, who named the missing discourse of desire in sex education uh, and talked about how much this interferes with our agency and how if we're not talking about pleasure and we're not talking about desire, we're basically just doing it wrong. And that was in 1988. And I feel like nothing has changed, particularly Mm -hmm. in school-based sex ed. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so real. Like it, Mm -hmm. it actually feels quite radical for me to even picture a teacher being like the importance of pleasure and feeling empowered through intimacy. Like I just, Mm -hmm. it's a world I so am ready to live in. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. it is so far from the current realities of sex Mm -hmm. education. So I'm so, so, so with you (laughs) on that. Yeah. Um, Amazing. Thank you so, so, so much for sharing. Can you share like how people can connect with you and your podcast and support your amazing work? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so my podcast is called Do We Know Things? The website is doweknowthings.com. The best place to find me on Instagram is at Do We Know Things. I also run a sex ed page called um, Sex Ed East. So I do sex ed for grownups in Atlantic Canada. And so you can find me at sexedeast.com or on Instagram at sexedeast. Amazing. Thank you, Lisa Dom, so much for the work you do and for sharing with us. And I feel so inspired to like read all the publications it's <laughs> just like <laughs> sex research brain activated yes awesome oh so good thank you everyone for listening thank you so much for listening loves i hope that this episode was incredibly educational inspiring and insightful for you like it was for me make sure to follow dr lisa dawn on social media and check out her amazing podcast all of the resources and links that we mentioned throughout the episode are available in the show notes and my dms are always open too on instagram i'm sending you so much love and i'm excited to share another epic episode next week